Hello and welcome back to Where Have All the Children Gone? This is a deep dive true crime podcast that looks at the evil that affects our children and may be difficult to listen to. It contains graphic and mature themes which some might find offensive and it is not recommended at all for young children. I'd like to thank for the last time the Oklahoman C.S. Lewis for his book Tent Number 7 and the GirlScoutMurders.com webpage on top of numerous hours of research to finally put a close, at least for now, of this podcast. That's right. This is part six, the final chapter of the Girl Scout Camp Murders. <clears throat> I'd like to give a shout out to someone. Her name is Alexandra Yudi. She's a character drawer at Legoland. And when she did a character drawing of my family as Lego characters, it was worth every penny. So if you ever go to Legoland, ask the customer service which kiosk she's at. She did an awesome job. She's a very delightful young lady and very talented. Tell them you heard about her on this broadcast and that I say hello. And remember, this was a free shout-out, so you know I must have liked her work. Anyway, as I said... I'm your host, Ellie, and this is part six, the final chapter of the Girl Scout Camp Murders. Now, there was another litigation that I kind of alluded to. Parents of two of the families sued the camp. The attorneys for Walter and Betty Milner, which was Denise's parents, and Charles and Sherry Farmer, which was Lori's parents, claimed that the camp was overgrown, unlit, unsecured, and poorly operated. And the council alleged negligence allowed the girls' deaths. Unfortunately, they all agreed that Hart was the murderer. So the defense was able to say that the police, the FBI, and every other agency that's looking for Hart could not find or stop him. How could they? It was revealed, though, that there had been numerous stranger sightings, items missing, in addition to the threatening note stated that the three girls would die. However, the prior director had told the leaders who knew about it to keep it quiet and not to tell anyone else. The current director stated under oath that she was never told about these incidents and had she known, she would never have accepted the position. The verdict was not guilty and the camp is exempt of all responsibility. Talk about a second sucker's punch to these poor parents. Not that money really would have helped them, but it, I think what their desire was, from what I read, was to hold them responsible enough so that they did something about the camp to change these, this situation. So, three little girls were murdered and no one was held accountable. Let's be honest, the investigation was a clusterfuck from the beginning. That's right, guys, I said it, clusterfuck. I can't think of a, one in the, of all the ones I've done so far that have been this messed up. The night of the murder, it rained, leaving the campsite a pristine crime scene. It was understandable that the camp counselors searched the other tents. Of course, if you find one kid or possibly, in this case, three kids missing, you're going to be looking to see were they someplace else before you shout out alarm. 
and it was reasonable to remove the other little girls from their tents away from the crying scene so that they would not see the dead little girls. But had I found the dead body, the first thing I would do would be to call the police, not the camp nurse. What is she going to do? They're already dead. Therefore, I give the first idiot award, and I'm a nurse, so this is hard to do, to the camp nurse. She was the first idiot to contaminate the crime scene. She drove her car right up to where the bodies were and touched at least Denise. However, once confirming Denise was dead, she backed away and waited for the camp director and her husband. She should have kept everyone away until the police could establish a perimeter around the crime scene. The camp director hearing a child was dead didn't call the police first either. She wanted to see the dead body for herself. So she too dries up right next to the crime scene, obliterating any tire tracks for the, from the perpetrator. The nurse tells them Denise is dead, but that isn't enough for them. They want to see for themselves. The director's husband told everyone else not to touch anything and then proceeds to touch Denise. He said he was checking for a pulse, yet to everyone else it was evident she was dead. He then moves the sleeping bag at his wife's instruction to protect her privacy. I can understand this, but she's dead and her privacy's shot. You need to keep the crime scene the way it was, how you found it, because otherwise you could be damaging evidence for the police not to find. He also moves the other sleeping bags and then feeling them and decides they contain the additional girls. Come on, dude. Where is your brain? Even at this point, one might understand their activity if they immediately called the police. But instead, no, listen, they jump into the car and go to the ranger's home. Ba -ba -da -da -ba -ba. Rangers to the rescue? I don't think so. They all drive back to the crime scene and find finally the ranger calls the CHP and the police. When the CHP officer arrived, he attempted to preserve the area where the bodies were discovered. It wasn't until a few hours later when the OSBI arrived that the crime scene in its entirety was actually roped off. However, by that time, the crime scene had been trampled by numerous people. And the other funny thing is, they didn't use that nice fun tape initially, like you see. He asked the... the the ranger to, uh, you got some rope or something you can rope off this crime scene for us? Just joking, just one of them cop, old town cop voices. But anyway, it was indeed under the direction of the OSBI that it was finally, finally roped off. Mom, my next big faux pas that really bugs me is how does an experienced FBI officer put his handprint in the blood stain in the tent? Even the most basic person knows to wear gloves in a crime scene, let alone one that contains blood. Who knows if they... The one thing that really confuses and confounds me, though, is finding a fingerprint 
of a 911 dispatcher on Denise's body. Their explanation was that he touched the silver plate before it was used. We are expected to say, oh, okay, that explains it, but I call foul. If you find police personnel's fingerprints and palm prints at a crime scene, they get a pass? This fingerprint is very suspicious to me. The very process of the iodine fingerprint collection process calls it foul itself because the very first thing they do is clean the silver plate. They scrub that plate clean with silver polish which erases anything on that silver. Otherwise, it won't take up the iodine print. Therefore, either the technician messed up, which after reading many reports, I doubt this was the issue, or second, the technician felt it was a viable print. So if the print was a positive instead of a negative, he would not have thought of it viable, which it would have had to been if it was on the plate. So how did this 911 operator dispatcher print get on this child? Why would a dispatcher touch a dead body of a child? It was one of the police officers in the area, it was one of, one of the other people handling the, the ambulance people. You'd go, okay, they screwed up, they should have their gloves on, but okay. But everybody in these areas all wear gloves. So how did that 911 dispatcher's fingerprint get on the body? Their job wasn't anywhere near the morgue. And I find this very suspicious, but no one else seems to. The other part that I find suspicious, and I wondered if there was some type of, not necessarily full police person, but somebody that knew police procedure was involved, was because when they went to that ranch, that was broken into and where the perpetrators had picked up the tape and the rope from, the house was wiped so clean, they didn't even find but one fingerprint that belonged to the rancher, which doesn't make sense either. So I find there's a little bit of hinkiness going on here somewhere. I always wondered if it was the uh, rancher's, I think it's his nephew, uh, being part of the party that perpetrated this grievous event. Now the primary suspect was found guilt, not guilty because the defense was able to raise reasonable doubt by providing additional suspects that the jury felt could have possibly committed the crime. Basically what they did is throw everything but the kitchen sink in to confuse this jury. However, Jean Hart still remained the primary suspect for the police and families. They didn't care that he was found not guilty by a trial and they knew there was nothing that could be done about it, but they still believed it was Hart. And even if he couldn't be prosecuted for it, they wanted to get it confirmed that it was him. The basic area of the murder was beautiful, but filled with all outlaw hideout lore for those like I told you before, Pretty Boy Floyd, the Doolin Gang, and good old Jesse James. Multiple incidents of tribal lore and intervention of medicine men magic 
causing first confusion, but later maybe some clarity for some. Hart, the main suspect, attempted to confuse the police with stories of his shape-shifting, making it the reason he was able to break out of jail for the second time and evade police for months. Hart was Cherokee and had lived in the area all his life. His grandmother was a powerful woman who held a prominent position in the tribe. It was very easy for Hart to disappear in plain sight, having roamed these hills since childhood. One thing that I found interesting, there was this kind of a um, talking to the grandmother. She talked about that she had the very first color television in all of the Cherokee Nation. So you can imagine how much that cost back then. And the fact of her being the first one was of some prominence. Hart was put on trial but was acquitted because the defense presented reasonable doubt, like I said before, by bringing forth another viable suspect named William Bill Stevens. Stevens was known to be in the area by his own admission. He showed up at a coffee shop looking agitated and had brown spots on his boots that appeared to be blood. He tried to wash off the blood and when he could not, he bought a brand new pair of shoes throwing out these totally functional pair of shoes, especially for a rough rider, which is a guy who, who works in an oil field um, would have used. There was no reason to throw him away unless it had some type of evidence on him. Stevens was said to have made a jailhouse confession that included great detail. But of course, Stevens denied the confession. Most of the facts against Stevens were eyewitness accounts and so in this so-called confession. He wasn't a nice guy. I'll give you that. In fact, he was currently in prison for a robbery, rape, and beating of a woman in her 50s and then dumping her in a car trunk to die. However, that was when his sperm and his partner's sperm were collected to be compared to this case. And they did not match the semen that was found in the girls. Now remember, DNA did not exist until the 80s. The lab could say a hair was an exact match, but not that it was a, with 100% confidence that it only had come from Hart. The sperm evidence was more specific. The sperm from Hart was oddly shaped and matched the oddly shaped sperm he currently produced post-physectomy. Hart was a typo and he was a secretor. The semen from the victims was from a non-white male who was a secretor and was typo blood and it contained deformed sperm that were microscopically similar to heart sperm and what would be expected from someone who had a vasectomy. The sperm was determined to be hearts despite his vasectomy by Dr. John McLeod, the leading male fertility specialist in America at the time. He testified heart sperm matched the sperm in the victims. The other possible perpetrators either had immature sperm or normally shaped sperm. Sometimes they had higher or lower numbers than normal. None of them had this oddly weird shaped sperm other than heart. Later DNA tests were done, in case you wanted to know, but they still showed that it was most likely that it came from heart, but not conclusively. Unfortunately, due to the deterioration of the samples, this still only decreased the percentage to 0.2% of the population. Uh, they, the sperm was retested in 1989, 2002, 
and 2008, all being inconclusive. It would be nice after all these years if we could ask Stevens what really happened. But in the answers died, but the answers died with Stevens, 27, when he was stabbed to death in his cell at the Kansas City Penitentiary at Lansing. His body was discovered as prisoners were going to breakfast shortly before 6.30 in the morning. Of course, unlike the jury, we also know that Hart had abducted two pregnant women, tied them up with rope and tape, just like these little girls, raped and sodomized them repeatedly, buried them alive, and left them for dead. We also know he had a fetish for women's eyeglasses. Unfortunately for him, those two women were able to make their way out of the grave and identify him and put him in prison, from which where he escaped. This escape increases minimal stay from seven to 304 years. To further muck up the trial, the district attorney used the trial to attempt to boost his ratings in an election for attorney general. The campaign director was so zealous to raise money, he put an ad in the paper selling shares of a book about the murders. It was discovered that he had signed a contract to share the profits of a book deal. In 1989, Ted LaTurner had a witness. This witness stated he had seen other people in that tent that night. The witness said he saw one man hitting the sleeping bag with a hammer, another man carrying two sleeping bags out of a tent. He named one of the assailants as Stevens. Another one he named was Jack Sonny James Jr., another Frank Justice, and the large man that he saw carrying two sleeping bags out of the tent was later identified as Bill Stevens. A petition was drawn up and was signed by numerous people, but the petition was denied by the court stating lack of evidence, including not having retested the DNA. Finally, you have to ask yourself, why was the primary evidence given back to the families? Were they just so sure it was Hart, they didn't care anymore, now he was dead? Sherry Farmer, in a 2007 interview, stated that Lori's belongings were seldom opened. They remain in the closet. The families were told to either collect their daughter's belongings or they would be destroyed. Sherry Farmer has much of the evidence collected from the crime scene. Investigators were going to throw it away. Her daughter's suitcase is still stained with the dustings of the fingerprint power powder. As she looks at one of her daughter's shirts, she states, here's your shirt. So tiny. It's so tiny. Time has turned the blood brown, and Sherry believes the killer left part of himself somewhere in this evidence. And if the current DNA being tested isn't conclusive, someday, somehow, the murders will be solved. She stated, I think there's something in there that has the answer. I think there's a reason I kept it. I think there's an answer, unquote. But so far, there's been no answer that will compensate for the loss of her daughter. But good for her because she, she never knew where DNA was going to go to.
she and the actually she and the other families were smarter than that of the OSBI. Once their suspect was not guilty, they still thought he was, and the only attempts to solve these murders were to prove their theory right. While all three families keep their child's belongings in a cardboard box in a cool, dark back of, of a closet, hoping one day their questions will be put to rest. I believe, personally, this case can be solved through forensic advances. The only question is, will Oklahoma want to reopen, reopen that festering wound again? Is it worth it? A lot of you ask. Ask the family of Margaret Peggy Beck, who at the age of 16 was a Girl Scout counselor in 1963. She was found sexually assaulted and killed in her tent. Over 50 years later, her murder was solved just last year in 2020. On August 18, 1963, Beck's tentmate, who had been in an infirmary that night because she had been ill, found her dead inside their tent after going to check on her after she failed to appear for breakfast. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled, authorities said. Her families were informed, family was informed of her murder later that day after they returned home from church. Investigators used evidence that was recovered from the crime scene to create a DNA profile of their John Doe killer first in 2007 and again in 2019. It was in October 2019 that the profile led them to Taylor Elias Alberti. Investigated with United Data Collect, a private company to have DNA that was recovered from the crime scene tested against a public database, which led them to Taylor's relatives and eventually to Taylor as their suspect. But while authorities have issued a warrant for Taylor's arrest, they've been unable to locate him. However, they do know that Taylor, who they say has a criminal record, including incidents in 1972 and 1974, was last seen in Las Vegas, Nevada in 1976. Beck is survived by her three sisters, according to the sheriff's office. The family said in a statement shared by authorities, Peggy was a beautiful young girl who loved life. She was loving and protective of her family, and we will cherish the memories we have of her forever. And we'd like to thank the Jefferson County Sheriff's Investigator Team for all their work. Now, authorities have been unable to verify if Taylor is currently living or deceased. Anyone having any information on the crime is encouraged to place a call to the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office tip line at 303-271-5612 or the Metro Denver Crime Stoppers at 720-913-STOP. But at least in this case, they were able to do a DNA profile that identified their killer. Most likely, he's dead, but at least they know that the person that's dead was the killer and wouldn't hurt any little girls anymore. That's the piece that this second case, the one I've read to you over these last six periods, doesn't have. So we have two cases, both tragic, both dealing with Girl Scouts, and Girl Scouts are important to me because I was a Girl Scout for many, many years, started out as a brownie, and they were a really good organization and still are. So we have two cases 
one that took over 50 years to solve, the second still awaiting a cold case person to have all the items re-examined with today's technology to determine the killer or killers and provide justice and peace for these three families. So someone take that hair and prove, is it or isn't it hearts? Get a DNA profile from it and put it on CODIS. We have the technology. The parents have kept the evidence for you. There has to be an answer. Someone put this bad boy to bed with a definitive answer. So this ends chapter six of the Girl Scout Camp Murders. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm sorry my voice was a little off today. I know it's somewhat unfulfilling because it's inconclusive. I don't know if they will ever bother to resolve it since the two main candidates are dead. But I hope they will because this murder has stuck with me for a long time and I know I'm not alone. I know there's thousands and thousands of people out there that are waiting. There's all kinds of forums about this killing, waiting for them to find definitively who killed her. Did the, the police drop the ball or were they right? Either way, it stands cold, but I'm not giving up hope. Because if they could solve one that took 50 years to solve, we still have some time. This is Allie signing off for Where Have All the Children Gone? And I'll see you next time.